From claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. EWTN Radio presents The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. Hey, Happy New Year, everyone. Can you believe it's 2024? Yeah, I can't believe it. Still wrapping my mind around that. But uh, it's been a great year in 2023. Check out the Miracle Hunter website for the top 23 miracles of 2023. And you can subscribe to the newsletter to get that list. And uh, I compile that I compile that list every year. And uh, as those numbers are going up, we're, we're cataloging more miracles every year. But this is 2024 now, and we're, we're off to the races uh, this year talking about saints. And we'll be talking about an up-and-coming saint. Uh, His name is Irving Francis Houle, who's a servant of God uh, from uh, Upper Peninsula, Michigan. He's actually a stigmatic and somebody on the path to sainthood. We'll be talking with his vice postulator today, Terry Sanders, and we'll be talking about servant of God, uh, Irving Francis Houle. We'll also be talking about, uh, in the opposite end of things, not a new saint, but a very old saint, We'll be talking about St. Raymond of Penyafort, who was part of the Our Lady of Ransom uh, apparition event, and that was uh, centuries ago. We'll be talking with Marge Fenelon, an author who's been on this program many times, talking to us about St. Raymond in lieu of his feast day uh, this week. And uh, people who want to check out uh, my content on EWTN, you can tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time for They Might Be Saints. It's a show which looks at Americans on the path to sainthood. And this week, They Might Be Saints, is Venerable Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory. And she was uh, her life of holiness and service to the elderly poor has led to a groundswell of support for her sainthood cause. And I'll be looking at Mother McCrory's legacy and the miracles attributed to her. And that'll be uh, this Wednesday, January 10th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And check out my other program, Explore with the Miracle Hunter. This is one of my favorite episodes coming up on Saturday, January 13th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, where we travel to Rome. There are two Marian apparitions in Rome that are the subject of this investigation, and one miracle led to the building of St. Mary Major, and the other to a dramatic conversion when an anti-Catholic Jew wore the miraculous medal. So check that one out, Explore with the Miracle Hunter, Rome. And that's on January 13th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And later in the show, we're going to be looking at the 365 Days with Mary project. For today, we've got the Immaculate Conception of Guadalajara in Guatemala City in Guatemala from the 17th century. The might-be saint of the day is Blessed Quisisandus uh, of Tarauca from Portugal. And the question of the week, I have read that the coloring on the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe floats above the cloth. Is this true? I'll try to answer that question. And the might be the miracle of the week, and we're actually miracle of the day, excuse me, we're going to be doing a new segment for 2024. Uh, we have the uh, question of the week. We have the might be saint of the day. We have the 365 Days with Mary project, but we've got a brand new uh, project that we're working on this year. It is the miracle of the day. And there is a miracle related to the holy face of Jesus, that image on the Veronica Vale in the year 1849. Stay with us for the first uh, first uh, episode of the first uh, edition of this uh, miracle of the day. We'll be uh, looking at that later in the program. Now let's take a look at the miracle news. We do this every week where we talk about uh, the miracles happening all the world around the world and those things that relate to miracles. And uh, we, we've had some big miracles happening this week, one related to a weeping icon and another interesting story relate, related to an Indiana man found in his car and rescued from a car wreck. So the story goes that there was an Indiana man. So the story goes that there was an Indiana man found by a good Samaritan rescued from a car wreck after six days trapped in the vehicle, and it has been called a miracle by some. So the article says an Indiana man who crashed his truck and had been trapped inside it for nearly a week was found alive this past week by two fishermen who happened uh, to spot the wrecked vehicle. The fisherman, Nivarlo de la Torre, and his father-in-law, Mario Garcia, he noticed the crash truck under an underpa- overpass on Interstate 94 as they were walking around, along Salt Creek in Portage, Indiana, looking for fish holes. And they initially believed they had seen a dead person inside the vehicle until one of them touched the body and the man turned his head and spoke to them. I went to touch and he turned around, Garcia said at the press conference, and almost killed me because it was shocking. He was alive, and he was very happy to see us. I've never seen a relief like that, he said. 
He said that he tried yelling and screaming, but nobody would hear him from the car. It was just quiet, just the sound of water. And so uh, so this Indiana man was stranded in a crash truck. His name is Matthew Rayum, age 27, was stranded in his truck for six days before these two fishermen found him. And the two good Samaritans called 911, and the first responders rushed to the scene at about 3.45 p.m., on Tuesday, and the driver told the fisherman he had been stranded and paralyzed in place since December 20th. And the, the driver, who is 27-year-old Matthew Ram, was heading westbound on Interstate 94 when his truck left the roadway for unknown reasons. That's what the Indiana State Police said in their statement. And the vehicle was driven into a ditch before making it into a creek and stopping under the bridge. Ram was pinned inside the vehicle, was unable to reach his cell phone to call for help. And uh, they were able to cut Rayum from the vehicle using heavy machinery. He was then flown to a hospital in critical condition for treatment of severe life-threatening injuries. And so that's the incredible story of uh, this man, uh, Matthew Rayum, who was rescued from his vehicle after six days of being uh, stranded there. So check out the Miracle Hunter uh, page on Facebook. You can read the entire article about this, uh, this event, which people are calling miraculous. Let's take a look at Catholic Pub Trivia. We do this every week where we ask a trivia question and give out a prize to an emailer who writes in with the correct answer. My friends who know me know that I love trivia. You might find me on a random night playing uh, pub trivia, but this is Catholic Pub Trivia. And so uh, the question from last week was, in what year did January 1st start being called the Solemnity of the Mother of God rather than the Feast of the Circumcision of the Lord or the Octave of Christmas? And uh, well, that was the question from last week. And the answer for last week was, in 1969, the revision of the liturgical year and the calendar in the Roman Rite states, January 1st, the octave day of the Nativity of the Lord, is now the Solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God, and also the commemoration, the conferral of the Most Holy Name of Jesus. And it removed the October 11th feast day, even for Portugal, stating that the maternity of the Blessed Mother is celebrated now on January 1st in the Solemnity of Mary, the Mother of of God. And so the answer to that question is 1969. Thanks for everyone who wrote in trying to answer that question. And the question for this week relates to saints. We're talking today with Deacon Terry Saunders about servant of God, Irving Houle, somebody who hope who we hope will move along the path to sainthood to venerable. The question for this week is, which American was the most recently to be declared venerable in our Catholic Church? If you think you know that answer and want to win the prize, the image of the faces of Mary, send me an email to uh, questions at miraclehunter.com or just go to my website, miraclehunter.com, and send me a message that way. And answers and winners will be posted on the show page on miraclehunter.com. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking to Deacon Terry Saunders about Servant of God Irving Houle, a stigmatic from Upper Peninsula, Michigan. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People who know, who listen to this show know I love talking about saints, and even more than that, American saints, and even more than that, future American saints, so much so that I have a television show, show which airs on EWTN on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time, which is called They Might Be Saints. And I have a book out by that very same name, They Might Be Saints, which is available from EWTN Religious Catalog at EWTNReligiousCatalog.com. And in that book, I detail the lives of 24 Americans, venerables uh, and blesseds, those people on the path to sainthood with some miracles. They will be t- declared saints by our Catholic Church. And uh, one of those uh, one of those uh, people in the book is uh, Venerable Bishop Barriga from Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And uh, we did an episode on him, one of my all-time favorite episodes, and we got to spend some time in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. And when I was there, I got wind of another canonization cause that is also coming out of Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and that relates to a stigmatic Irving Francis Houle. And uh, I've been following his case ever since, and I've been wondering, uh, will he be moving along from Servant of God to Venerable and beyond? And we've got someone here with all the answers, and that's Deacon Terry Saunders, the Vice Postulator for Servant of God, Irving Houle. Welcome to the program today, Deacon Terry. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm happy to be here. 
Well, it's exciting to talk to you because uh, there aren't that many uh, cause active causes in the United States of uh, potential uh, American saints. And this is somebody who is a very modern saint. And uh, I think uh, a lot of people can be excited about that point and somebody coming out of Upper Peninsula, Michigan. So we're very happy to talk with you today. And for those people who have never heard the name Francis Houle or Irving Houle or Irving Francis Houle, who is the man that we're talking about today? Oh, we're we're talking about a man that was born here in the Upper Peninsula, a native of the Upper Peninsula, uh, a family man uh, who grew up in a large Catholic family and was raised by devout Catholic parents and and utilized the sacraments and the sacramentals and the rosaries and uh, all of the things that we do in devotions uh, throughout his life. Uh, and uh, he was a normal guy, though. He uh, went to school. He was an athlete in school. He he was kind of a little jokester when he was a kid, and it kind of carried on into his life. Uh, and, of course, he uh, he was um, grew up around the World War II, so he was drafted into the army when he left high school. They're just he just had the experience that many people from that generation did, and which makes him really uh, a normal man. But uh, in my view, he's far from normal. Yeah, no, that's that's so fascinating. So a, a normal guy, someone on the path to sainthood. I suppose many of us uh, are hoping to be that kind of a normal guy who uh, reaches reaches the heights of heaven someday. And so, um, what was it about Irving Houle? Anytime they propose a somebody as being a saint in our Catholic Church, they're always talking about heroic virtues these uh, these virtues of a person's life that have been lived to the utmost degree in such a way that the Church should recognize them and make them worthy of emulation and recognition as a saint. What were the heroic virtues you would say of Irving Hull? Well, it's just kind of like you said. You know, our lives move along, and God works in our lives if we cooperate with Him, and He perfects us as we go along. And hopefully, by the time we get to meet Him face to face, we'll be close to perfect, if not perfect. And uh, I knew Irving during uh, 16 years at the end of his life, uh, and we were very good friends. Uh, his heroic virtues that he displayed after many years of being a devout. Uh, Christian Catholic who loved Jesus and believed in the Church, uh, those heroic virtues were his love for God, his love and devotion to his family, and and keeping his family together is a, is a strong point. I mean, my goodness, we know from what we see around us now that families are attacked in every way. And Irving held his family together. Uh, there was weekly family gatherings. They all celebrated the church feasts together uh, as large families uh, from the time he was a child until until he died. Uh, so his love for Christ, the Blessed Mother, the saints, and his family, and doing all the things that the little things that we do we're supposed to do every day with God, doing your job to support your family. Uh, taking your children to church, uh, recognizing every day that God is God and we are his creatures and we rely on him. Uh, Irving did all of those things, and I, I saw him do that for 16 years, and then and he talked to me about doing that in his early years. Uh, it was a, It's just amazing. It's not so much the stigmata that he received, that would qualify him as a saint. Uh, it is what he did with that charism once he got it, how deeply he believed that Christ uh, gave him his wounds for the benefit of the Church and for people. And he yeah, let, let, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, I think yeah. in the history of the Church, there have not been a very large number of people who have been marked with the wounds of Christ, that is, the uh, the wounds uh, in Christ's crucifixion made manifest on human flesh uh, of a living person. Uh, this has happened uh, not many times in human history and only a handful of times in American history. And yet we see in the case of Servant of God, uh, Irving Houle, we see this same mystical phenomena manifesting. And uh, talk a little bit, if you would, um, about uh, when that first began to occur and, and what was sort of the reaction of, of Irving or the people around him when he started to receive these wounds? 
Oh my gosh, it, it was such a confusing time for Irving and for those of us around him that knew him. And uh, it was early in uh, uh, Lent in 1993, and Irving uh, received an interior locution <laughs> from Jesus. And Jesus told him two things, basically, in this locution. He said, prepare yourself to receive my holy wounds and consecrate yourself to my mother. She will look after you and protect you. Uh, and it, like I said, that was early in Lent, 1993. Irving himself never really relayed the exact date. But then again, it came to a Good Friday of 1993. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, he had tremendous intense pain in his hands. And uh, he took... Uh, he took an over-the-counter pain medication, several of those that didn't help. Uh, he didn't know how long, much longer he could stand it before it let up on him finally. And then the next day, he noticed small purple marks in the center of the palms of his hands. Now, this has not only been documented by Father Fox in his book, A Man Called Francis, but also Irving told me these things, and I saw these wounds within a few days of him receiving them. Uh, so the the amazing things that the locutions then came from the Blessed Mother, and I think there were maybe fifteen or sixteen of them, and they followed beginning in May of nineteen ninety three, and and continued for a couple of years, uh, just encouraging him to continue and building his strength and and God working on him, perfecting this charism in him for the benefit of people, and uh, and those those came along so. That's about how it came about. We were all confused. The first time I saw it, I was sitting on my sofa, kind of roughly where I am right now at my house, and Irving came in to minister to me. I was dying of cancer at the time. And he came in and he looked very haggard. And I said, gosh, Irv, what's up? You know, well, I was about 160 pounds and close to death. And and he said, uh, uh, he didn't know. He said, I don't know what's happening to me. And he held up his hands directly in front of me, standing in front of me while I was seated on the sofa. And I saw these two small purple marks in the middle of his hands. And my response was not verbal. It was to fall over on the couch mm -hmm. and to thank Jesus for dying for me on the cross because I was pretty certain I was going to see Jesus pretty soon. And uh, I, I wanted to. Uh, I was trying to deepen my relationship with him to make sure that he knew who I was when I got there. Huh. And uh, Irv, uh, Irv was standing there, and my, when I woke up or came to whatever you want to call it, which only lasted a few seconds, uh, Irv and my wife were praying over me. And uh, you know, and then I watched those wounds move. Uh, the back of his hand swelled up over the ensuing weeks to about an inch high. You could see the swelling on his hands and, uh, uh, and then they split open. And then now he had a hole in the palm of his hands in each hand that bled and a split on the top of his hands which bled. Um, and uh, and then the, it settled into the routine of uh, uh, of every night he suffered the passion of, of Christ from midnight to 3 a.m. And uh, and the wounds would bleed on feast days, and every Friday they would bleed. And it was that time that was so confusing because he didn't know what was happening or why it was happening. And he hadn't shared yet the, the fact that he had these locutions, this locution from Jesus warning him that you would receive my holy wounds. And, and he hadn't shared that with anyone that I know of yet. And uh, uh, it wasn't until later that he that he shared that when Father Fox drew these things out of him. And there was a close circle uh, of three or four friends that he shared it with. But it wasn't until a, a long time later that uh, those of us that were good friends of his, but he didn't share that, found out about it. Amazing. We're talking today with Deacon Terry Saunders, the Vice Postulator for the Servant of God, Irving Houle. And uh, we'll see when he moves along from the path to Venerable, Blessed, and then to Saint. And so, uh, Deacon Terry, when we talk about um, the examination in the sainthood cause, we look at these uh, the, the life of, of uh, heroic virtue that's most commonly what's examined. And of course, if there are 
uh, any writings or uh, speaking opportunities for, for these people. These words are always examined in great detail. But then when you have somebody who has uh, exhibited mystical phenomena, perhaps uh, these wounds of Christ that, that are being claimed or the uh, locutions, the visions of Mary, that, that uh, adds another layer of complexity, doesn't it, in, in the, into the investigation of a person's life? Yes, it, it does. And Irving actually had, to my knowledge, to my personal knowledge, at least three visions of Christ in his life. The first being when he suffered a, a fall from a horse when he was six years old. And in fact, Irving points to his uh, religious life and his deep relationship with God uh, beginning at that time. He broke a bunch of ribs and pre- uh, punctured his lungs and he ended up in the hospital uh, and they weren't sure he was going to live. And in the middle of the night, uh, he had a vision of Jesus. And Irv told me he, when he was six years old, he didn't know it was Jesus. And so the next morning when he woke up and the, the doctors found that he was breathing normally and not vomiting blood and could find no more evidence of broken ribs, uh, he said, who was that beautiful man in the white robe that came into my room last night? He asked his mother, who had spent the night with him there. And, of course, she didn't know what he was talking about, and then, and she asked him to explain further. And he said, well, he had long hair and stood at the end of the bed and just raised a hand, you know, and, uh, and uh, who was he? And then they came to the conclusion that he must have seen someone. And that was one. And he had two other visions late in his life that I personally am aware of. And they were both of Jesus dressed in once dressed in white and another time uh, shown as he would have looked after uh, ha- having suffered the scourging and the beatings and the ill treatment uh, at the hands of the Roman government and the Jewish leaders. Absolutely amazing. And so we talk about uh, the cause for canonization for a servant of God, Irving Hool. We talk about uh, some of the things that will be examined along the, along this path. Uh, can you give us an update, uh, Deacon Terry, about where does the cause stand right now? When can we expect to see some movement going forward and recognition by Rome? Well, all of you who are aware of Irving uh, uh, and know of this or will become aware of him by maybe researching it, uh, let us pray that that happens soon. There's been minimal movement over the last few years. The pandemic had something to do with it. And uh, uh, the Historical Commission is now in the process of completing uh, some of their tasks, and I expect that uh, that interviews of witnesses, because there there are tens of thousands of people who met Irving Hool in their lives and were touched by him, and uh, and and, uh, and there's a witness list that is probably a hundred people long, and uh, which is unusual for an investigation into sainthood to have these living witnesses. Uh, I'm I'm praying and hoping that this will begin soon this year. Uh, some of, a couple of the interviews have been done, and those are allowed to have been done earlier because of the, uh, uh, like Gail, his wife was interviewed, and Gail, bless her heart, she's uh, probably 92 years old or so, and, and then another beautiful person named Rosemary who's in her 90s, and just to advance the age and to be able to speak with them while they're still with us. That will come along in the, in the near future, the those, um, it, you know, we just have to be patient. It it doesn't it doesn't happen fast enough for us. They, uh-huh. it, I, yeah, all, all sainthood causes uh, move moves at the church's pace, which is uh, sometimes a glacier's pace. You might say uh, it moves very slowly, and sometimes it takes years, decades, and even centuries. Uh, for saints to be fully recognized in our Catholic Church. And we hope that the cause of uh, Irving Hool moves along uh, swiftly. But in the meantime, for people who want to find out more, uh, people who want to learn about the incredible life of Irving Hool and and perhaps seek an intercessory prayer uh, for their own miracles, what would be a good place for people to go to learn more about this uh, this future saint? Well, we have a website that uh, it's nice, but it's not utilized as much as as I would like Uh, probably due to my age and, uh, and being not a techie, uh, but it's irvingfrancishool.com. That would put you in touch with uh, uh, where our address is in, in Escanaba, Michigan. And uh, my name's Terry Saunders. I'm a deacon at St. Anne's Parish. Uh, I would take phone calls from anyone about Irving at this number, my home phone number, 906 786 
In fact, I hear from people uh, all over the world about him, and I send materials out. And uh, uh, and one day, according to God's will, this this thing will move. And uh, and I I believe Irving is a saint, but that's only me. I'm not the church. Well, we hope that uh, that others uh, come forward with uh, stories of favors and miracles and contact you at irvingfranciswhool.com uh, or the number you gave in order to move this cause along. And uh, we wish you all the best in, in, uh, in uh, presenting the life of, uh, of Irving uh, to Rome and to be successfully received. So thank you so much, Deacon Terry Saunders, for joining us on today's program. Thank you, Michael. God bless all who are listening and you. God bless. That was Deacon Terry Saunders joining us to talk about the servant of God, uh, Irving Francis Houle, uh, an incredible life of uh, faith and uh, someone we need to keep our eye on. And we'll be, uh, we'll be giving you updates about his cause as it moves along. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be trying to answer the question of the week. Is it true that on the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the color floats above the cloth? Stay with us for that answer. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. I love getting your questions. People write in from around the world with questions about miracles happening in today's world and those that have happened centuries ago. I like getting in my email inbox, but I also like answering them in person. I travel around the country and I give talks at uh, parishes and shrines and um, other places uh, at conferences, and I've uh, been talking about a lot about Eucharistic miracles these days, but uh, people invite me to speak to their group, and at the end, I usually speak to 45 minutes to an hour, but then for 15, 20, or more minutes, uh, people have questions about miracles, and I love doing my best to try to answer them. And we have a good question this week, and I've heard people with this question before, and um, you know, I, I think it's a uh, it's a good one, but it's important to, to get right. So the question is, Dear Miracle Hunter, I have read that the coloring on the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe floats above the cloth. Is this true? Phil. Well, thanks, Phil, for that question. And I think that uh, we talk about Our Lady of Guadalupe, that uh, amazing image, that long-lasting image from 1531 is when it's dated back to with uh, Juan Diego. They're in Mexico City receiving the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and that cloth has lasted all these years, even though similar cloths have lasted only 30 years or so. It is the only cloth in its condition in the entire world of this type of fiber, so it's truly amazing. People talk about the other remarkable qualities, uh, the perhaps the eyes found in the tilma or the, the colors on the image. Uh, these are and all the the various uh, symbolism uh, and aspects of that image that uh, that scientists have looked at and tried to to draw conclusions about. But uh, one thing that does get reported is that there have been some uh, extra kind of uh, miraculous things that have been attributed to this cloth. One being, uh, you hear some people say that a heartbeat can be heard uh, on that cloth, and that's not true. And uh, if you were to, if you were to put up uh, medical instrumentation to it, that's not true. Another one that's uh, that's told and relates to this question is that the coloring of the image actually floats above the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. That it's not actually embedded in the cloth, and that's not true either. That's another uh, we call it an urban legend or a pious legend, you might say. Um, in the the if you were if you were to see an image of the back of the cloth and and I do have such images you can see that the coloring uh, which uh, constitutes the image it actually bleeds through from the front to the back so it does not float above uh, we talk about perhaps the shroud of Turin the coloring on that shroud is on the very uppermost uh, layers of the fibers of that cloth and some people might say it kind of floats above. But in the case of the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe, the coloring actually penetrates and soaks through the entire cloth. So, so thanks, Phil, for your question. Um, sorry to disappoint you if this was a long-held belief of yours, but the reality is, is that the coloring on the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe does not actually uh, float above the cloth. It is in the cloth itself. So, uh, so thanks for that question. If you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, you can send me an email to questions at miraclehunter.com, and maybe I'll be answering your question on the air next week. 
Let's take a look at the 365 Days with Mary project. We do this every week where we look at the Marian devotion as it lines up exactly to the day's date. We all know uh, Fatima, May 13th, or Lourdes, February 11th, or Guadalupe, December 12th. But believe it or not, there's a different other Marian devotion that from around the world that lines up exactly to each day of the calendar year. So for today's day, we've got the Immaculate Conception of Garda Viejo in Guatemala City in Guatemala from the 17th century. And uh, the story goes that on January 6th in Guatemala City, the Fiesta of the Guarda Viejo District marks the end of the Christmas season with a Three Kings uh, Feast Day celebration. And festivities begin in the town with the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. The image of the Immaculata, known as the Virgin of the Holy Kings, is perhaps the uh, oldest of several statues in Guatemala City. It was formerly owned by the Franciscan Third Order. It was donated to the Franciscan Church in the suburban outpost of Garda Viejo in in the 1800s, and this revered image was reconsecrated by Cardinal Quesado Toruño, the Archbishop of Guatemala, on January 6, 2003, at a special ceremony for this occasion. And that's the Immaculate Conception of Garda Viejo in Guatemala City in Guatemala. For more information on this fascinating devotion, or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions from around the world, you can go to 365dayswithmary.com. You can pick up the book. You can download the free app from the Apple App Store. Or you can go to the Facebook page and join any of the other 10,000 other followers who follow 365 Days with Mary. Now it's 2024, so we're going to be trying a new segment here on the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. And we talk about 365 Days with Mary. We talk about the might-be saint of the day. But we're going to talk now, each day, about the miracle of the day. And so, um, during the period between Christmas and the Feast of the Epiphany, Pope Pius IX was in exile from Rome. And the church was experiencing a revolution with many things going on. Now, during this time, he asked for special prayers. And in the last three days, he had Veronica's veil on public display in the Vatican. And of course, this veil isn't very visible and it's covered with a silk cloth. And the last day of this novena, January 6, 1849, a miracle purportedly occurred. The veil started to glow, it was reported. And for a period of three hours from 12 noon to 3 p.m., our Lord's face was lifelike and could be clearly seen. And the image was reported to be weeping and bleeding. And the canons of the Basilica ordered that the bells be rung, and many people came to see this miracle. The miracle itself is documented by an apostolic notary in the daybook of the Vatican Basilica. And of course, there's no photography at that time, so only uh, drawings were made of this. And no one knew at the time that the image, what image lay hidden in the shroud, so there was only the drawing of the miracle on Veronica's veil. And uh, copies of the Veronica Veil miracle were made for a period of about 75 years. And so that is the miracle of the day on January 6, 1849, a miracle related to the Veronica Veil. Let's take a look at They Might Be Saints. We do this every week where we talk about people on the path to sainthood. We're talking about servants of God, venerables, blesseds, before they have all their miracles recognized by Rome and are declared by declared saints. And so uh, earlier in December, during an audience gra- granted to uh, his most reverend eminence, Cardinal Marcelo Semeraro, the prefect for the dicastery for the cause of saints, the Pope authorized the same dicastery to promulgate the decree regarding the martyrdom of servant of God, Jean Havlik, a seminarian of the Society of the Missionaries of St. Vincent de Paul. He was born on February 12, 1928 in Slovakia and died out of hatred for the faith on December 27th. 1965 in Skalica, also in Slovakia. And according to the Dicastery for the Causes of Saints website, he was a seminarian of the Society of the Missions of St. Vincent de Paul. The communist regime was trying to carry out a project of extinction of religious phenomena, in particular against the Catholic Church and its ministers. Jan never acted against the state, and his persecution was motivated exclusively, exclusively by his Catholic faith and loyalty to the Church of Rome. And that is uh, John Havlik, who now will be blessed John Havlik. And with one miracle, he will be declared Saint John Havlik. So that's the update on the uh, latest coming out of Rome uh, related to future saints. Now let's take a look at the might be saint of the day. We do this every week where we talk about the person on the path to sainthood whose feast day or death anniversary lines up exactly to the day's date. And for today, we have Blessed Chisinandus of Tarouca from Portugal. 
So he was a 12th century Cistercian monk and evangelist, and he was a spiritual student of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who sent him to northern Spain and Portugal to preach and to spread Cistercian spirituality. There he founded the San Juan Monastery at Tarauca in Portugal in 1142, and it lasted for over 700 years. And legend says that Jesus received a vision of St. John the Baptist in 1131, in which St. John asked for the monastery. A decade later, a supernatural light led the monk to the spot where the house was then built. And that's Blessed Cisinandus of Tarauca from Portugal. He's today's might-be saint of the day. For more information on this fascinating saint or any of the other future saints uh, featured on the television show They Might Be Saints, you can go to theymightbesaints.com. And you can also tune into They Might Be Saints every single week on EWTN on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And on January 10th of this week, we have They Might Be Saints, Venerable Mary Angeline Teresa McCrory, a Carmelite, whose life of holiness and service to the elderly poor has led to a groundswell of support for her sainthood cause. I'll be looking at Mother McCrory's legacy and the miracles attributed to her in the show coming up on this week. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with author Marge Fenelon about St. Raymond of Penyafort and his miracles related to Our Lady of Ransom. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People who tune into the show probably know that I try to line up my shows with the Roman calendar, the saints and the feast days that come up, the celebrations of the Mother of God. I try to do a show, perhaps, that lines up pretty closely with uh, what the church has laid out for us. And today's show is no different. Uh, I'd like to talk about a someone who I haven't in any previous episode in all the years of doing the Miracle Hunter radio show, and that's uh, St. Raymond of Penafort. And uh, he was a priest uh, from Spain, and uh, it's uh, his feast day is January 7th. So this is a perfect time uh, to talk about this saint who had some miracle moments and apparitions that uh, perhaps shaped the world. And we're so grateful today uh, to be joined by uh, Marge Fenelon. Uh, we've had her on the show before. She's a, a favorite guest of the show, and, uh, and she's been involved in various projects, including uh, this new project of mine called Hidden Gems, uh, which, uh, which is uh, featuring the American shrines uh, and uh, how those shrines came to be and what's at those shrines. And she is the script writer for that brand new program. So we're so excited uh, to welcome back to the show today, Marge Fenelon. Hey, Michael. It's so good to be here. Well, thanks for, for uh, being here, Marge, and for talking about St. Raymond of Penafort. And this is a, a name that uh, most American most American Catholics uh, have never heard of or uh, may, may be somewhere in the recesses of their mind. But he isn't a popular saint, but his feast day is January 7th. So this is a, a good opportunity to talk about him. Uh, tell us a little bit. Who was the man, St. Raymond? St. Raymond was a Dominican. So as you mentioned, he's a priest, he's a Dominican priest. He lived in the 1200s, early 1200s, and his tie to Our Lady, which rounds a miracle hunter, is that she appeared to him and, and to others, actually, in 1218. So Peter, St. Peter Nolasco, and then, of course, St. Raymond of Penafort, and then James, the King of Aragon, which was not a saint, but apparently she appeared to him as well. But she had a very special mission for them. And her mission was for them to found a religious order that would be specifically dedicated to freeing Christian captives from the Saracens and Moors. In that time period, this was, you could almost say, epidemic. The, the capture of the Christians and, and being held prisoner by the Saracens and Moors. So her mission to them was they needed to work to release these Christian captives. So St. James, I, I see I do that because they're the other two are saints. King James, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, you're so used to just to always the saints involved with the Blessed Mother. King James then established an order that was all in one royal, military, and religious. And they called it Our Lady of Ransom. So later it became known as the Mercedarian 
border, and, and I've visited Mercedarian churches in South America. Um, apparently, they have a reputation for being very ornate, and uh, this one was, was not to be dis- a disappointment. These members, then, of this order, founded by King James, were given the privilege of wearing the king's own arms on their breast, so very much a royal and military order. The knights of this order work to guard the coast and deliver the prisoners, the Christian prisoners from the Saracens and the Moors. The cleric members, their job, so to speak, was to pray continually for the knight's mission, and they particularly observed the divine office in prayer for the knight's mission. Now, the order spread, as you can imagine, because when you've got a need, then the need needs to be met. And they collected alms. They would go so far as to surrender themselves for the freedom of the Christian prisoners, which I just, it boggles my mind. That is an amazing thing. It's one thing to collect alms to ransom these Christians, but another to say, hey, take me instead. So and, instead, and, instead of just giving some money to uh, to get the prisoner out, they'd say, uh, "Put me in prison instead, and let the other person out." Exactly. I mean, it just when I think about it, that's incredible. What? How selfless and and beautiful. I I would hope that maybe I could do that, but I don't. I don't know if I'm that close to being that that holy. That is quite a remarkable way of working things. I think, and this grew. All of this, this custom, the order grew, and then Pope Innocent the Twelfth in the 17th century extended the feast from the Mercedarian order, the Feast of Our Lady of Ransom, to the Universal Church. So that's how we get that feast day. But but Saint Raymond, of course, is at the forefront of these efforts. He is part of this order. He's he's living his Dominican life. There is a story of a miracle that took place. I think it's kind of an unusual miracle. It's pretty neat. I don't know that I would try the same thing for myself, but um, St. Raymond was the confessor of King James of Aragon. They together went to the island of Majorca, and there they were aiming to convert the Moors. Well, (laughs) the king... This is why we know he's not a saint, I think. But um, he brought along his mistress, and Raymond scolded him. Of course, this is is wrong. It's morally wrong. So he, St. Raymond, asked the king to dismiss the concubine. And it was many times that he had to ask him. But King James was stubborn, and he said, no, I'm not doing this. So finally, St. Raymond tells the king that, okay, well, if you're not going to dismiss the concubine, I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't stay here with you any longer. And so he was going to return to Barcelona. But the king, and here's an interesting thing about this, the king, even though he's committing this sin that he knows he's wrong in doing, he doesn't want St. Raymond to go. So he forbids him to leave the island. And I think that's very telling that somewhere in his heart, now I, I don't know his heart, of course, but somewhere in his heart he must have known, I really need St. Raymond. I need him to get me out of this sinfulness. So he forbids St. Raymond to go, but St. Raymond is not going to stay by any means. So he tells his Dominican uh, companion who is there with him, come down to the seashore, we're leaving. And what his mode of transportation was his cloak, which he spread over the water, used his walking stick as a mast, invited his Dominican companion to to hop on and come along with him. But, of course, the Dominican, I think I would be the Dominican companion, is, you know, no way, because this doesn't look like this thing is ever going to float. But, sure enough, St. Raymond floats away, on his cloak, and even the, the boats that he should have traveled on uh, but was refused passage, the sailors cheered him on as he navigated around these, these ships and, and then off to Barcelona. So it's a very interesting 
and unusual miracle. And, you know, it's, it's 160 miles to Barcelona. So this was not just off, you know, across <laughs> a little channel. <laughs> yeah, we, we imagine <laughs> you did some long... fishing along the way for meals, but uh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. An incredible story. The, I love this, the, the hagiographies and the stories of saints that we've gotten uh, throughout the years in our Catholic Church. Absolutely amazing. amazing. And we've been talking today with Marge Fenelon, a Catholic author, uh, talking to us today about St. Raymond of Penafort, whose feast day is January 7th. And uh, we were talking earlier about uh, Our Lady of Ransom. And this is sort of an older devotion, perhaps. Uh, I know that there's a, a parish uh, in the Chicago area where I live, Our Lady of Ransom. And I think uh, a lot of people have commented to me, I don't even know what that means. But what would you say that the takeaway of Our Lady of uh, Ransom or Our Lady of Mercy, as she's more popularly known today, how can we apply that uh, in our modern world? Uh, with Some of the generosity that we've seen uh, some of these people who were releasing uh, prisoners. What, how can we see that as being important in our own lives today? Well, I think it's twofold. First of all, we know that physically there are Christians held, held captive for their faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we can turn to Our Lady of Ransom and pray for their release. Even if we can't physically do anything to help them, we can definitely do something spiritually, and that is to to invoke Our Lady of Ransom for their freedom. But when we look closer to home and look at our own hearts, you know, we're held captive. We, too, are, are Christian prisoners in the sense that any kind of sinfulness or selfishness, uh, spiritual laziness, apathy, addiction, you, all of these different things, greed, lust, <clears throat> what they're doing is <clears throat> excuse me, holding us captive from living a joyful life in Christ. You know, if you've got this in your life, and this being whatever the sinfulness is, it's, it forms prison walls around you because it separates you. Obviously, we know from the catechism, sinfulness separates us from, from God. Well, we're holding ourselves captive by allowing ourselves to fall into this this sinfulness, or even, you know, it doesn't have to be out-and-out sin where you're committing something very obvious to all, but just the fact of being lazy or apathetic in your faith, it weakens your Christianity and opens yourself to the possibility of the evil one's influence on your life. And this is why it's so dangerous. This is why it holds us captive. Even if we're in that state where, well, a little sin won't hurt, or just just not, you know, I'll just get my prayers for a while, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal, because this opens that door just enough that the evil one can start to influence us. And that, certainly, we don't want by any means. And, and it holds us prisoner, because, because it builds on each other. You know, a little sin builds on to a bigger sin, and on and on, until... You know, people that we look at who, and again, I want to caution, we can't judge their hearts, but they look like they're living a terribly sinful life. Well, how did they get there? It it starts small. It's not like somebody just one day wakes up and says, well, I'm going to live an outrageously sinful life. No, it doesn't work that way at all. It's the little stuff. That's where we have to be on guard, not let ourselves be held captive. So we turn to Our Lady of Ransom and ask her, please, please, ransom me, free me from whatever it is that's keeping me from God. Very well put. A good analogy from you, Marge Fenelon, Catholic author, talking us to us today about Our Lady of Ransom and St. Raymond of Penafort, one of the three visionaries in that uh, groundbreaking vision that uh, led to the formation of an order, which led to the freeing of captives with the Saracens and Muslims. And so, uh, Marge, people can find out about your books at margefenelon.com. You've written numerous Catholic books, and I'm so excited because you have a brand new book that's coming out on January 22nd. It's called Behold Your Mother. As we wrap up the show today, tell us a little bit about this new, uh, this new offering of yours. Oh, I'm so glad I, that you asked me because I'm, I'm super excited about I, I'm excited about all my books, but this one, this one holds a very special place in my heart because it's the Stations of the Cross written, it's very unusual, it's written from the perspective of the child 
observing the mother's suffering on the way of the cross. So it's a very different, you know, there are, there are other ones. I know that there are other Marian stations of the cross where it talks about Mary and what she might have been going through. But this is different. You become, when you pray these stations, you become the child. And you realize, and speaking for myself, because I wrote them, so I, I worked through all of this on my own as I was writing, that, that the reader, you become the, the child and understanding and realizing and seeing the agony in your mother and understanding that you were part of that, and this is not to, not a guilt trip, but that you were part of that, and and our Lord suffered specifically for you. You know, there's that saying that had you been the only person alive, Jesus still would have suffered and died for you. Well, we can apply that to the Blessed Mother as well. Had you been the only person ever to have lived, our Blessed Mother would have gone through all of that just for you, because she loves you so very much. Well, very, very exciting. And this new book, I love the perspective that you're taking. This does seem to be novel and something that hasn't been done before. So uh, congratulations on this idea and this book, Behold Your Mother, available January 22nd. Where can people go to find this book when it becomes available? Definitely our Sunday visitor. Um, it's up on the site already. You can, you can get it from Amazon. It's available for pre-order. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to a really Marian Lent, and so I'm excited to have this book coming out this year. Wonderful. Well, we're so grateful to you, Marge Fenelon, for joining us on today's show, talking to us about St. Raymond of Penyafort and Our Lady of Ransom. Check out her work at margefenelon.com. And Marge, we wish you all the blessings of the new year. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Marge Fenelon, Catholic author. Check her out at margefenelon.com and you'll see her new book, Behold Your Mother, out January 22nd from our Sunday visitor. And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you missed any of this episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can go to EWTN.com radio. Check out the audio archives or download the free EWTN app. I'd like to thank our guest today, Terry Saunders, uh, talking about Servant of God Irving Francis Houle and his canonization cause and Marge Fenelon, an author talking to us about St. Raymond of Penyafort. And I'd like to thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where from claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. Talk to you next week. <laughs>